that's in charge of liturgy will say, the Lord be with you, and then the church responds back to him, and also with you. But I think that we all can, can say that the, that the Lord has been with us, that God has been with us. He's been with us this past week. He's been with us through everything that we're facing, everything that we're going through, and everything that's happening in the world right now, which, you know, we've dealt here recently with, of course, pastor is very sick. It appears that Diane might be the only one that's prayed through. She's the only one that's not sick out of the whole family. You've got pastor, pastor Scott, uh, Benita, uh, Josh and Caitlin, even Wyatt has been sick. So, so Diane got a prayer through. She's the only one that's, that's well. She still needs prayer because she's got to deal with all them sick people. So <laughs> that God gives her protection through all this. Um, but with that and then, then Curtis's father, Howard, passing away and, and, and walking through everything that that involves, that's, that's difficult. And our prayers have been with him and support. As he stood up here and said, we've, I think we've all, if you weren't able to physically be there and, and make, a, make a touch and, and hug him, and uh, at least your prayers have been with him. And, and that's, that's what we do as a body of Christ. But even today, thinking about the other things that have happened in the world this week. Now, this is just our small body of Christ that has experienced these, these difficulties this week. But throughout the world, there's, there's a major crisis going on in Ukraine. There's people that are dying. And, and it, takes, it takes us doing the right thing and asking God to come and judge the world. And when we say judge the world, we're not asking him in the terms of some ancient holiness preacher that, that has misinterpreted the word judgment or to judge the world. When you take someone or you go to court, you and another party, a plaintiff and a defendant, they go to court and they go before a judge because there's someone that is complaining against the other. There's one that's lodged a complaint against the other. The plaintiff has said, I have a problem with this defendant, and I need you, judge, to make it right. I need you to set it right. And when we pray, we pray for God to judge the earth. We pray for God to be a judge and stand between us and the evil that is in the world, and we say, God, judge the world and make it right. Send a righteous judgment and make the world right again. Not in the way that we sometimes see judgment. We see judgment sometimes as God sending fire from heaven. And then we all end up consumed. And we see judgment sometimes as God sending plagues. And sending frogs or sending waters of blood or whatever it is that you can think of. That's not God setting the world right. Those are plagues. Those are not judgments. But when God sends a judgment, that is God setting the world right. So I thought about the events from this week, and, I, and, I, and when, when Pastor Curtis sent the text out yesterday that Pastor Scott and Pastor Kevin were both not going to be here, and I started trying to think about what, what, would, I want to, what would I want to hear. Is I've been thinking about this this week especially with everything going on in, around the world. And um, I just kind of, yesterday afternoon, I began to write down a prayer 
and I want to I want to pray that. Um, I don't always write down my prayers, but sometimes I do, and sometimes it's very helpful. And uh, uh, David did that. Uh, there's many books of prayer that you can go through, and a lot of those help open up your soul and open up your heart to hear even thinking of someone else's writing as they begin to pour their heart and their soul out. It gives you almost a, a path to follow. But this is, this is the prayer that I begin to write down. So I'll read through it, but obviously I'm praying it as we, as we have this moment here right now before I go into the rest of this message. But Heavenly Father, we're heartbroken and angry, disgusted and dismayed at the unlawful, violent acts against the Ukrainian people this past week. The ministry of Jesus doesn't teach us to make war with our hands. Instead, Lord, you teach us to pick up the ear that's been cut off by violent weapons of war and heal it so that we can perform the work of sons. For blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. You teach us to listen. And this morning, if we listen closely enough, we'll hear the voices from under the altar crying aloud, How long, O Lord, until you judge and avenge the blood of those slain? This morning, we join in that prayer, but we should also join in your call to be righteous judges of the earth. In doing so, we judge this heinous evil with the words of Micah, where he says, and he shall judge among many people and rebuke strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts hath spoken it. For all people will walk, every one, in the name of his God, and we will walk in the name of our Lord, our God, forever and ever. Today we walk in the name of our Lord God. And we decry this wickedness and call for weapons to be turned into tools of cultivation. We wage war this morning, but not with carnal weapons, but with mightier weapons with which we pull down strongholds, casting down imaginations and any high thing exalting itself against the knowledge of God and bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ having a readiness to revenge all disobedience in the world through our acts of obedience. And as an act of obedience, we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray in Matthew and Luke. And we can say it together this morning. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that have trespassed against us and lead us not into temptation 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you for bearing with me as I read through that. But given the events of this past week and other things that are going on in, in life around us, did your mom happen to leave or is she, is she still here, Crystal? Yeah. She has a class. Okay. When I saw her come in, I felt the burden of the Lord. As soon as I, I could not hardly help but from crying. And at some point, I'll, at some point, I want to pray with her. Because there's a point in this, in this message today that I began to write down and went back to it last night and then went back to it again early this morning and wrote something else down that made me think of, of a dear friend that is surrounded right now that I want to make sure that I pray for. But given the events this past week, I've been listening, and of course it never fails. Anytime that there's a war, anytime that anybody invades, there's always the end-time prophets that have now let us know that the world is coming to an end, I guess. Uh, again, this is, I wish, I, I've, I'm 35, and I don't know how many times the world has ended, at least 10, at least 10 to, that I recall. But the world continues to end, so to speak, in some prophetic sense or some prophetic way. And uh, all the, the, the best that they can come up with is that, that God is, this is God's way of, of judging us for all of our sins. This is God's way of teaching us how wrong we are by allowing wars and allowing tribulation and allowing all this difficulty. And I would love for that person, this so-called prophet, an eschatological proficionado or aficionado, I would love for that person to stand in the face of some of the videos that we've seen this week. One that sticks out in my mind so vividly is a father putting his daughter and his wife on a train, giving her a letter and crying because he's staying to fight. He's staying to fight so that they can live, so that they can survive, and he does not know the certainty of his future. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that that's happening in the world today, in a world where it shouldn't happen, in a world that should have peace, in a place that should have the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what should be taking place today. Not war, not weapons, not violence, not violent acts. And that's why we cry aloud and we spare not. That's why we realize that we've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And when I'm called on to testify in that courtroom, I am fully, aware, I'm fully capable and ready to say, this is evil. This is wrong. But it never fails through poor eschatology. However, if your ministry believes in the teaching of the book of Revelation, and that teaching would be that ultimately God wins, and his victory as our victory. And in his victory, he sets out the same challenge before us, fully preparing us to overcome. And says to him that overcomes, that he'll inherit all things in Revelation 21. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. And if that is your church's eschatology, which it is here, by the way. If that is the church's eschatology, 
then the mission of that church will look very different in the world we live in today. And I wish to lay out some of that vision of that type of mission, but also how it relates to us individually as we walk through the world and we deal with the challenges of life that face us on a daily basis. A mission based on overcoming evil by the means of warfare that we've grown accustomed to in our human lifetime, those are shaped by poor eschatology. Those are shaped by people that are willing to escape, that are ready to run, that are willing to hide. And I say that they're willing to hide, I say that they're hiding, because that's the type of eschatology of leaving the earth and forsaking the beautiful, good thing that God created. And don't forget that when God's created the world in Genesis, that he said, it's very good. He finished his work and he said, it's very good, and he went to rest. And that is still the truth today, that the world that God created is very good. And he didn't call us to escape it. He didn't call us to leave it. He called us to stand between the resurrection of Jesus Christ and a new heaven and new earth and declare through the power of resurrection that God can change the world and that God will judge the world and set it right and he can do so through us. And that's a mission that is shaped by an inaugurated eschatology and empowered by what Paul called the, the pneumaticos. This word pneumaticos is used by Paul in many of his letters, but mostly in 1 Corinthians. There were once many theological debates over the, his use of this word as it pertains to 1 Corinthians 15, where he mentions the natural body and the spiritual body. But once you get to the root of the argument, you get to the root of the meaning of this word, which means that you are empowered and emboldened by the Spirit of God. The pneumaticos is an adjective that describes the new creature, the new man. Now Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 that the first man is of the earth and earthy. And he's talking of Adam. The first man is of the earth and earthy. But the last man, they said he has made a quickening spirit. Means that it's not just something that has been given life but it's something that gives life. And what's happening in Ukraine right now is not giving life, it's taking life. But the Spirit calls us to be people of the pneumaticos. It calls us to be people of the Spirit. And it calls us to be people that believe in an eschatology that's been inaugurated, meaning that God started something when Christ died on the cross and rose again, that he began something in the world that cannot be changed and it cannot be reversed. Something that started with the work of Christ and inaugurated something in this world and in our life. And we'll talk more about that. And I want to talk about it through two biblical narratives. One is through the book of Revelation in chapter 12. In the brief reading of this chapter, there's many archetypes and much symbolism from which we can extract meaning. But as we read through this chapter, I won't read the entire chapter. I'll save you for that. There's a lot of it. And truly to understand all of the symbolism that takes place here, you would have to read from chapter 12 to chapter 19 to fully capture what God is doing in these chapters. But the way in which you have to read it 
you have to read it with the mindset that God always triumphs over evil. Always. Always. He always wins over evil. I feel such a burden in the Holy Ghost for my family, for my friend. It's almost hard to even look over there because I know that you're what's touching them right now. You're the only one that can actually get through to them at this point, unfortunately. Because he won't respond to me. And I've got such a burden for what's happening. He's surrounded. He's surrounded by man-eating monsters. But I know that through the night of his soul that he can still come up out of that. I know that he can still rise out of it. Because God always triumphs over evil. He always does. And I don't want it to go the bad way. I don't want it to go a negative way. I don't want the loss of life. I don't want the loss of a friend. I don't want the loss of any of it. The loss of a marriage. The loss of everything. I believe that God can win in this situation. And I believe that God ultimately does win. In spite of the evil that, and the heinous acts that we commit in the earth, I believe that somehow, some way, God finds a way to win. That somehow, some eternal way, that God still wins in the situation of Tammy losing her life. That I still believe in some eternal way, God wins. God has to win. Otherwise, this book and everything that we believe in, everything that we call hope, everything that we say is the hope of the glory of God or the hope of, of the world is Christ in us otherwise there is no hope in here there's nothing that I can find in here that can cause me to believe in eternal life if some way God doesn't find a way to win in the end through acts of violence through acts of hatred through acts that cause terrible deprivation in the earth I still believe that God finds a way to win in the book of Revelation in chapter 12 so, and there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, and she being with child cried, travailing in birth and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head, and his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child. And that could either be interpreted to say a mature, grown man or could also just to say that she was, gave birth to a male son. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God 
and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they love not their lives unto death. We'll skip forward all the way to Revelation 19. And in verse 11, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flames of fire, and in his head were many crowns. And he held a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God, the Logos. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, not in his hand, not weapons of violence, but the sword is in his mouth, not in his hand. And with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he tread at the winepress winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Just to make sure that you know who he's talking about. He makes this point clear. This is the man-child of Revelation 12 whose call is to rule the nations with the rod of iron. And when this child rules and grows up to rule, he rules with the rod of iron, and out of his mouth goeth the sharp sword with which he smites the nations. And it's nothing to Jesus to say these words. So the sword doesn't cut with violence, but it cuts to the depth of your soul. The Bible says that the word of God is quick, and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing asunder soul and spirit, what is of you and what is of God. At the word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Logos, the eternal word that Jesus was, the word that proceeds out of its mouth, out of his mouth, is like a sharp sword, and it will divide asunder what is you and what is God, what is soul and what is spirit, what is darkness and what is light, and teaches us, teaches us the difference, teaches us what's the difference between myself and God, teaches us what's the difference between darkness and light, and that's what he's doing. So back through some of this symbolism specifically the woman in revelation 12 it says it's the the greek word that's used is not just a female but a married woman so someone that has already committed her life to another that this is the woman that gives birth to the man child and this man child we can say through reading all the way to the end of revelation is jesus christ and this child, it says, is caught up to God. So he's caught up, or the, the word for caught up is harpazo. And it's the same Greek word that once you translate it back and continue to transliterate the word harpazo in the Greek, it means that when you take someone who is a king and they're outside of the city, and as they're making their way towards the city triumphantly, possibly returning from battle or with the spoils of war, that everyone in the city would go out and 
meet this king and get caught up in the air with this king celebrating his return that the king has finally come to sit on the throne that is rightfully his. That's what is happening here. And it says this man-child is caught up to God. This man-child is celebrated as the king that will rule. And if you take that thought process all the way back to the book of Ezekiel, and you take that back to Ezekiel who was a strange prophet. I don't know if you've read the book of Ezekiel. It's very strange. There's wheels within wheels. There's four-faced beast there's it's just as strange as revelation i don't know how you, yeah oh gosh don't say you said lsd oh, <laughs> it's possible it's possible i don't want to rule that out but i don't god now brent just told everybody to go do lsd take psilocybin and have a don't do that don't do that. don't do that oh god why'd you say that oh, couldn't help <laughs> I was on a roll too. <laughs> but that's the king that is inaugurated. And if you take that to Ezekiel, it says that it'll overturn and overturn and overturn until he come whose right it is. And whose right it is to sit on the throne is not someone who is not one of, it, it is someone, excuse me, it is someone that's of David's lineage. It is someone who has the generation of Abraham and the generation of David, as it said in Matthew 1 and 1, that this is the generation of Abraham and of David, someone who is of the right seed, someone who is of the right lineage, who can truly sit on the throne, and that is Jesus Christ. That is the Logos. He's the one that is caught up, and then the woman is, is taken away. If you read through chapter 12, it says that she's caught up on the wings of an eagle, and she's put out into the wilderness where she's fed and where she's protected by God. And every time I read that about the wilderness, I think of the last chapter of Song of Solomon where he begins to say, Who is this that I see cometh coming out of the wilderness on the arm of her beloved? And I believe that that is us. I believe that that is a symbol of the church giving birth to Christ continually giving birth to the mature Son of God, giving birth not just to Christ himself, but us as the body of Christ. There's a lot of archetypal symbolism that can be gained from this one chapter and in reading chapter 12 through 19 and putting the pieces of the puzzle together to say that Christ is the one who reigns and rules, but then he makes us his own body. He makes all of us the body of Christ and puts us in the same place as him puts us in the same position as himself where I'm ruling in the throne with him, seated together in heavenly places is what the Bible says, what Paul wrote. That was Paul's eschatology. That was Paul's belief that God had already accomplished a work, that he had inaugurated something, and that we sit together in heavenly places and we're seated together in heaven from whence we look. That's what he said in Philippians so it's an already and a not yet. We believe that he began something because I'm standing between the resurrection of Christ that took place, which I fully believe in, and without which we have no faith, is what Paul said. Without the resurrection, we don't have a faith to believe in. We stand between that resurrection that took place thousands of years ago and what that inaugurated for us. And we stand between that and a new heaven and new earth that is now but not yet it is now but not yet and we believe in the new heavens and new earth 
And we believe that it comes down from God as a bride adorned for her husband. And the tabernacle of God makes itself with men. Not us flying up to heaven to meet him. But he makes his tabernacle amongst us. He comes to where we are. He comes to you at your lowest point. He comes to you where you sit. He comes to you in your trials. He comes to you in your tribulation. He comes to you in the problems that you face. If you have made your bed in hell, as David would say in Psalm 139, you are there. He comes to me. I don't have to fly away to him. He always comes to where I am in the middle of my circumstances and in the middle of my pain and in the middle of my fear. He's always making his way towards me. The tabernacle of God is with men. And it's an already and not yet. And we stand between that. And it's our job as kingdom people or newly inaugurated people or people who walk in newness of life. It is our job to proclaim that message. And sometimes it means that we stand as judges in the earth. And it's not just so that we send a word of condemnation to the evil that's in the world. But we go and make it right. And that's why our prayers should be with these men that are in Ukraine, who some of them are in their 60s fighting today. They are fighting to put it right. They're fighting to make the world right again. They're fighting against evil that has invaded their land, invaded their homes, and caused massive amounts of destruction in just a few days. But I still believe what the Bible says as you lead your way up to Revelation 19 and you begin to read through that chapter and it says in an hour Babylon will fall. In one hour Babylon will fall. The Russians have caused so much destruction in just a few days but I still believe that evil empires and evil people that in just one hour God can cause their destruction and Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen is what it says. And the kingdom of God is initiated and inaugurated in the world. Not the kingdoms of men. Not the kingdoms of men. But the kingdom of God. And as we begin to look through this, it talks about this dragon in Revelation 12. And it seems like we seem to always face, and he says the word, the devil, who's diabolos, is anything that is the source of evil, and Satan, the accuser. Is, as a church... As a people of God, we will always prepare yourself for this. As long as the world remains, the church remains. And the Bible says that the earth will remain forever. So as long as the earth remains, the, the plan of God remains. And as long as the plan of God remains, we will always have to face evil. And we'll always have to face accusation. We will always have to decry evil and we always have to face down the false accusations of an enemy. And I'm not trying to say that that is a disembodied soul that moves around through the earth mysteriously and esoterically and somehow has his strange, weird influence in the world. The devil, the person, if you want to say a person is the devil, is not the one that's influencing Russia right now. That is the evil that is within the man's soul. And it takes the word of God to send a righteous judgment. The word, the sword that comes out of the mouth of God. The word that comes out of the mouth of Jesus that can divide asunder soul and spirit and call good good and evil evil. We have this example. And this is something that we always have to face. Because we're always as a church trying to give birth to the mature sons of God. That 
is really, and maybe we should back up just a little bit and talk about the inauguration or the inaugurated eschatology. One of the ways that you can really see it, one is John 5, 24, which is, Verily I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Not will have, but hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life that is one of the major verses that talks about the inauguration of God's new world of God's good kingdom in God's very good world shall not come into condemnation but is passed from death unto life Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. So it's an already and a not yet, as you compare John 5 and Philippians 1, that we have passed already from death unto life, but he that began the good work will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ, that we've but we've been given the spirit, the pneumaticos, we've been given the power that now has changed our source. That we now have a source, not of things of this world, but we have a source that is above. We have a source that is higher than us. Because as Jesus began to preach and began to teach to Nicodemus in the night, at the darkness, that Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he tells him, you must be born again in King James language. But the word means to be born from above. Nicodemus, if you're to see the kingdom, you must be born from above. And Nicodemus begins to ask a very natural question. Very similarly to how Paul begins to explain the difference in 1 Corinthians 15 of the natural body and the spiritual body. Nicodemus being a natural man asked a natural question. Well, how shall I be born again? Shall I enter my mother's womb and be born again? And Jesus says, no, Nicodemus, no. You must be born from above. You must have a different source altogether. You must be made brand new all over again. Not by a natural sense, but in a spiritual sense. You must be born again. And he teaches this to him in his darkness. He teaches this to him in the middle of the night. The same way he teaches us in the middle of our darkness. He comes to us at night and tells us, you must be born again. You must be born from above. You must change your source to something that is higher than you. That's being filled with the Holy Ghost. That's being filled with the Spirit. Being born from something that is above, that calls the deep within it, that calls into the deep within me and calls me to a higher calling. But really, Romans 8, verses 18 through 26 this is where the inauguration of eschatology and spirit and Messiah and the forward look to what is yet to come are held together in Paul's greatest statement of hope. Let's read through that briefly. Romans eight sixteen: The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. 
For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? And in these two verses, he answers that question. But if we hope for what we see not, then do we with patience wait for it? Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So the thing that we're hoped for, he asked that question, for what a man sees, why does he yet hope for it? Why would I hope for something that I can already see? But he said, the thing that we do not see is what we hope for. The thing that we feel but we cannot see it yet. The thing that we believe is out there. The, the point in, in life where we know that evil will be eradicated from the earth. We hope for that. We believe for that. We don't yet see it, but we have hope. We have hope because of all of this that's said before it, that the creation is groaning and it's travailing and it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. The creation is groaning and waiting just as much as evil and accusation, just as much as a great red dragon is waiting to devour the sons of God. The earth is also waiting in abeyance. The earth is waiting and just on tiptoes as if it could be said, waiting on tiptoes, waiting for this man-child to be born from this woman so that the sons of God might be manifested. That's what we're waiting for. That's the hope. That's the hope. That there's always going to be evil and accusation that is trying to eat up and devour the sons of God. But just as much the earth, creation, every good thing that God created is waiting for these sons of God to manifest themselves. Waiting for them to come to light. Waiting for them to come into their own and skipping all the way back through to Revelation 19, the part that always gets me is the part that I read is where it talks about Jesus, where his eyes were flames of fire in verse 12, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself, and he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. His name is called the Logos. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in linen, white and clean. That the one that we are following is the word of God. We are following the Logos. And we talked about this a few weeks ago with the uh, study that Michael and I did. And we talked about how the Logos is within us that I am made of the same thing that Jesus is made of. That's what we get, the point that we get to. And Michael preached a message about epigenetics and how just one change in your life can cause an entire genetic change in all of your DNA. And it leads you almost to a crossroads or, or at least a, 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 like what um, 
Robert Frost said that there diverged two roads in the woods and I, I took the one less traveled. And what's funny about that poem is that it's actually written as a joke to his friend. That Robert Frost, and I cannot remember his friend's name now, but they used to go, and he was a British man, they used to go on long walks. And obviously this is the time before cell phones, the time before GPS, the time before you could call, or I, don't, I can't remember Robert Frost's wife's name, but I'm sure probably if she could, she would have called and like, where the world are you right now? But he's lost, for, or just, they would just go out into the woods to get lost, to walk for hours. And he wrote this poem because of how they would walk through the woods. They would walk through and they would see a path, and his friend, very indecisive, well, I don't know, we could go this way, and it could lead somewhere. We could go this way, I don't know, we could go that way. And he was very indecisive. So he makes a decision for him in the poem. And he says that I took the one less traveled. In the hopes, and almost you could say as they wrote for because he wrote the poem, he sent it to his friend. His friend sort of critiqued it and said, yeah, I think this is cool and whatever else, and sent it back to him. And Robert Frost wrote him another letter and said, no, dummy, you don't get it. The poem's about you. It's, I'm not, I didn't ask you to critique my poem. I wrote this to you because it's about you. You take the road less traveled. Take the road that nobody else has gone down. Take the road that, that nobody else has traversed or that at least you yourself, that you've never traversed. And if you get lost, you get lost. Who knows? That's what, he's, that's what he talks about in that poem. I don't know. That's, nothing, I'd not, that's not in my notes. I don't even know why I brought that up. Trivia. Robert Frost trivia for anyone that wants that. But if we get to this point, we're following the Logos. We're following the Word. We're following the eternal word that has an eternal spirit. And that same logos is within us and teaches us how to live our life. Going somewhere very specific with this. Probably at this point we could probably go, we've talked a little bit about the inaugurated eschatology, but even from the, the point of being the quickening spirit, let's, let's read 1 Corinthians 15. There's a couple of verses that I'd like for you to see here. In verse 42, so also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. So look at the, look at the, the comparisons that he's making. The resurrection of the dead looks like this, is what he's essentially saying. This is the Brent loose translation of the Bible. It's sown like a seed in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. It means it's brought back to life in incorruption. And if I had a comparison for this, I would take you to the book of John where it says that the only way that a seed will live is that the seed falls into the ground first and dies. And there it abides alone, is what Jesus said. That the seed falls into the ground and there it lies in darkness alone and the seed dies. But in its death there's new life that comes out of it. That's the image that Paul is giving. That it's sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's the comparison. And it's the hope 
You have to find hope in that passage that if you have a life that is sown in dishonor, if you have a life that was sown in corruption, if you have a life that was sown in weakness, then you have a hope that can say that my life will be raised in incorruption, that I'll be raised in glory, that I'll be raised in power, and then if I sowed in a natural body, that I can also have a hope that I'll be raised a spiritual body. That's a hope that we have. I don't know how you've lived your life, but I can say that for myself, I have sown in corruption. I have sown in dishonor. I have sown in weakness. I have sown in the natural, but I do have the hope that I'll be raised in incorruption, that I'll be raised in honor and glory, that I'll be raised in power, and that I'll be raised a spiritual body. And that's where we get the word pneumaticos. That's where we get the word a spiritual body, a body that is no longer finding its life source through the natural but a body that is finding its source through the spirit of God through the dynamos through the spirit that is eternal through the spirit that God is for God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth that my life is now propelled forward not by natural means, not by, the, uh, not by the acclaim, not by anything that could attract me to anything else in the world, but I'm motivated by the Spirit. I'm propelled by the Spirit, and I'm filled with the Spirit, the pneumaticos. So, so through believing an eschatology that has been inaugurated, Believing what Paul believed. And that's, I think that's so silly to say sometimes, but that we have to, as a church and as a theological people, have to try and convince other theological people to believe what Paul believed. The one that wrote these passages have to convince church people to believe what the Bible says, to believe what Paul believed about eschatology. Instead, they'd rather listen to Schofield, they'd rather listen to Larkin and Darby and the rest of them, and those men didn't believe what Paul believed. They may have read the same Bible, but they didn't seem to believe what Paul believed about eschatology. And if you frame your eschatology based on that, then your mission will look quite different than the rest of Paul's mission. Paul's mission is to go out into the world and preach the gospel, whether it's in Athens, whether you're sitting at the greatest college and institutions of our time, or you're sitting in a house and preaching so long that a little boy falls out the window and dies, and then you got to go pray for him, bring him back to life, and go back upstairs and keep preaching. Wow. That's what I'm talking about. I would rather have that type of mission than a mission that that thinks that the world is going to go to hell in a handbasket or that the wheels on the bus are not going to get greased and there's no point in changing the oil in the bus because all of us are in the bus and the bus is going to fall off the cliff anyway. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? There is no point in that mission. There is no point in that eschatology. There is no faith in it. There's no work of faith in it. And it seems as though all the work that you would do with an eschatology that believes that or, or a faith that sends you towards that, it seems like I, I almost, why, why would you do it? What motivates you? What would give you the compulsion to go out and minister the gospel if that's what we're going towards? 
And some of them do take it from the standpoint that, well, brother, that's why we got to do it as fast as we can. And, and, and you know, like, uh, like an assembly line, get, get Model T and we're going to keep on sending out the gospel one after another, one after another until we can get it to every person in the world. And, and that's the, you got to get it as fast as we can. You never know when that trumpet's going to sound. You never know when that trumpet's going to blast and we're all out of here. And once that happens, all the rest of these poor saps, <laughs> sorry, sorry to be you, we tried. We, we tried. We tried to get the gospel to everybody. Tried to get you all saved, but you didn't decide for Jesus, so that's on you. That's your problem. Wow, what a, what a great faith. What a great thing to believe in. What a great thing to put your, your faith in. That's not at all what Paul believed. Paul believed that sometimes, yeah, it's a slow process to get saved. That's why he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. It's a slow process saving my soul. And it might take me until I'm 60, 70, or 80 years old. And my soul might not be fully, fully saved. I might not be a hundredfold by the time I'm 80 years old. I might not have given my entire life to God. I might not have plumbed the depths of the darkness of my soul and, extra, and ex, extracted all of the, the order, extracted all that I could out of it to try and have meaningful life. Might not be fully saved by then. Who knows? But I have a hope. I have a hope that if I've sown my life in corruption, that my life will be raised in incorruption. If I've sown in dishonor, I'll be raised in glory. If I've sown in weakness, I'll be raised in power. And if I've sown a natural body, that I'll be raised a spiritual body. That one day, the fulfillment of all that I believe, that one day, the fullness of all that God is will dwell in mankind and dwell within me. And if you read through the end of chapter 15, and it says, in the moment of a twinkling of an eye and the word means in atomos that in my body molecularly from my head to my toes I will be changed in atomos in the twinkling of an eye my entire body all of my atoms molecularly will be changed as fast as you can blink and that's the work that God can do not that I can do and it says my corruption will put on in corruption and my mortality will put on immortality and we will be changed and then the statement goes further and says that we'll be able to stand and say death where is your sting grave where is your victory won't have any it says the strength of sin is the law and the strength of the law or the strength of the strength of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law there's no more law there's no more sin if there's no more sin there's no more death that's what we're going towards. We're going towards a day where there's no more death. We're going towards a day of resurrection. Dying and going to heaven is not the answer. That's not the definition of, that's not the definition of resurrection. That's the definition of dying. Dying and going to heaven is the definition of death. But the definition of resurrection is life eternal. Life moving in us to say in John 5 that I've passed from death unto life. That's the definition of resurrection. Not the definition, not the other way around. That's the definition that I want. I'm working my way backwards. Daniel 6 and Daniel 7. And maybe we won't really read through it. I'll give you a few good points here. But think about Daniel 6 and Daniel 7, and we think about Revelation 12. And we'll also think about, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Daniel 6 is the story, and a background on Daniel, sometimes there are some, uh, 
scholars that seem to believe that Daniel was not the Daniel here, but it was another Daniel that wrote allegorical stories. Some of them say that some of these stories, some of them have uh, uh, evidence that they existed, but they also seem to say that there may have not been an interference of the Babylonian Empire with the ways and means that the the Hebrews lived their life or the way that they uh, did their dietary restrictions or anything, but that these stories were given to us from Daniel to teach us how to live our life. Some of them say that. Others say that these stories are real and that they actually happened. Whether they are or not, it's here, it's canonized, and it's something that we can put faith in. It's something that we can believe in. And that's kind of what I want to talk about with this part in Daniel 6. Daniel 6 is the story where Daniel is praying in the house, and here comes again evil and accusation. These men come, evil and accusation, and they get the king to make a proclamation to say that anyone that prays to any other god will be put into the lion's den. And the king somehow, as a buffoon, agrees to this silly order, signs it, it's duplicated, replicated throughout his entire kingdom, but it doesn't deter Daniel from doing the thing that God has called him to do. It doesn't deter him from his obedience. Because what did we say? Well, I read it in our prayer that we said that we read earlier, that we prayed earlier. Casting down imagination and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and having a readiness to revenge all disobedience by our act of obedience. We can avenge all of the disobedience that is in the earth by our simple acts of obedience. And that's what Daniel believed in. Daniel would unashamedly stand in front of his window and open it up to the world and do an act of obedience and pray. Which leads us to another point that if you are not living a life of prayerful obedience or at least obedience to prayer then you're not doing your job as a Christian. You're not filling your role as a, as a Christian and kingdom person. We should be praying. We should have a life of prayer. We should walk in the Spirit, thus not fulfilling the works of the flesh. As Paul said, we live in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit. It leads us to prayer, and it's as simple as contemplation. I'm not saying that in a condemning way to anybody, but what I'm saying is that it's, 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 so, it's quite simple to pray. Quite simple just to contemplate and think about God and have a conversation and discuss with God your life, the means by which you live your life, the purpose of which you live your life. It's easy to have these discussions with God alone. And they don't have to be for hours. They don't have to be for a minute, they barely have to be anything. Whatever it is that God leads you to do, whatever God leads you through contemplation to believe in, for just a moment, just open your life up to prayer. And in doing so, you're able to plumb the depths of your soul. You begin to realize what's really inside of me. What is really here? Where do I really find my source? Daniel believed in that. And Daniel prayed. He opened up his windows unashamedly and he would pray. And it got him in trouble for obeying God. His act of obedience was supposed to revenge all disobedience. But in the moment it didn't look like that. And most of the times in our life when we do an act of obedience in, a, in the means or by, with the purpose behind trying to uh, uh, revenge all disobedience, it seems like in that moment that we don't get what God promised. You told me 
that I could revenge all disobedience by my act of obedience. And here I am being obedient to God, and now I'm in trouble for it. And that seems like that all the time. It seems like so many times that you're just as you're about to give birth to the fullness of Christ or just as you feel that you're about to reach your spiritual peak with God, just as you're about to experience the fullness of, of God in your life and whatever means that is, whether it's financially or, or individually or in your family, it seems as though every time you're about to do it, here is evil and accusation waiting to just to latch on to what you're giving birth to and, and chew it up and devour it in just a second. And that's what happens to Daniel. Daniel performs his obedience to God. And evil and accusation, the devil and Satan, evil and accusation are there. It might not look the way Job did it. It might not look like this spiritual being that God says, have you considered my servant Job? Sometimes it looks like two buffoons that can convince another buffoon as a king to get him to make a rule that affects everybody else. Sometimes it looks like an idiot ruling a nation. Have you ever experienced that? An idiot ruling a nation? Amen. The church said amen. Exactly. But sometimes it looks like that. Sometimes evil and accusation looks like that. Sometimes the devil and Satan look like that. Sometimes the devil and Satan look like somebody that you've put your trust in, that you've poured your life into, and they turn around and stab you in the back. Sometimes evil and accusation, sometimes the devil and Satan look like something that looks like, oh yeah, I, I can do that, I have control over this, I have control over this, this is not controlling me, and suddenly you find yourself surrounded by man-eating monsters. You find yourself in, in, encapsulated, surrounded by lions because you thought that you were in control that's where Daniel finds himself through his act of obedience here is evil and accusation and he's thrown into the lion's den and he is surrounded by man-eating monsters that's what he got for obeying God but at least the king had enough sense in verse 18, chapter 6 and 18. Then the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. Which he went just means he went all night without eating. I don't know what his normal bedtime routine was. <laughs> but apparently he usually ate at night. Like, uh, that would not be a problem for me. If you're looking for something to do for some, some people observe Lent, and do a Lenten fast or something like that. It's coming up in a couple weeks. This, I guess this would be the most easiest one. If you want to choose a Lent fast, this would be the easiest one. Go through the all night fasting. If you can go all night long fasting, then there you go. There's your, that's a simple one. That's very basic. So, but whatever it was, this king, right, this king thought it was good enough that this was good enough. I went all night I went all night, God, I didn't eat anything. And I was just uh, so distraught over my, my friend for praying that I threw into the lion's den because I'm an idiot that signed this stupid law into order. Uh, I, was, I was distraught and worried all night long about you, Daniel. I couldn't do anything about it. It's not like I'm the king or anything. <laughs> and the king went to his palace and passed the night fasting. 
neither were instruments of music brought before him. He didn't have any bedtime music, not, none, not any whatsoever. No songs that put him to sleep. And his sleep went from him. Then the king arose. So at least he was laying at least he was trying to sleep. He was laying down. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste in, unto the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. Lamentable, l- lamentable. So, <laughs> I'm sorry. I cannot hardly take this seriously because it's the, the amount of absurdity in these few verses that how distraught and terrible he was feeling over this whole situation it's like if i borrow a lawnmower from from nick and then i i drove it off of a cliff and it's destroyed and i called nick and he's got to cut his grass and his grass is knee high and if you go out to his place you know there's he's out in the middle of nowhere too and he's got this grass that's up to his knees i am so sorry i destroyed that lawnmower there's nothing i could have done about it but and you can hear nick's country voice saying well, boy, it looks like you drove it off a cliff. <laughs> looks like you could have done something about it. You probably could have stopped it. I don't know. <laughs> you know, you're the one that drove it, right? Well, yeah. Well, it looks like you could have done something about it. I don't, 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 get, don't get smart with me on this thing. <laughs> with this lamentable king crying with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God whom thou servest continually able to deliver thee from the lions? Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouth, and they have not hurt me for as much as before him innocency was found in me. And also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. Then was the king exceeding glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no manner of hurt was found upon him because he believed in his God. A couple things here where he says, My God hath sent an angel and has shut the lion's mouths and they've not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me and also before thee, O king, have I done no hurt. What he is describing here is God making a righteous judgment. It's when, when Daniel would pray, he would pray, God, judge the earth and God, judge me. God, stand before me as one that makes the decision between right and wrong. Stand before me as the one that makes the decision between the plaintiff and the defendant and find a righteous judgment in the middle of this. And in this particular case God looked upon Daniel who was being accused he looked upon Daniel who was experiencing the devil and Satan he looked upon Daniel who was experiencing the accusation of someone and God made a righteous judgment and said I find innocency in this man and I have sent my angel to shut the lion's mouth for his sake I have sent someone to protect him and keep him from getting devoured by the thing that tries to kill him because there is still innocency in Daniel And God has done some of that for us in so many times and in so many situations. He has put, or we have put ourselves sometimes in the lion's den and been surrounded by man-eating monsters. Fast forward into Daniel chapter 7. It says that out of the sea there came this beast that looked like a leopard and this beast that looked like a lion and four beasts that come out of the sea. And after all four beasts 
get their chance in the spotlight through chapter 7, verses 1 all the way through verses 10 and 11. And once you get to verse 11, no, verse, uh, yeah, let's, we'll read it from verse 11. And I beheld then because of the voice of great words which the horn, oh no, sorry, I was reading the wrong, I'm sorry. Uh, as concerning the rest of the beasts, in verse 12, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season in time. And then he sees this, he saw in a night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds and of heaven and came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him and there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Would any of you ever argue with me? Would you care to have the argument with me that this is not Jesus? No takers. Good choice. Because I would have beat you on that one this is jesus he's talking about jesus so after all the beasts come out of the sea after everything all the man-eating monsters come out of the sea there's one that the bible says comes up the same way very similarly to how daniel it says is taken up out of the den of lions said he's taken up out of the den of lions and seated at the right hand of the king here is the same thing that's happening that the son of man comes as the ancient of days after all the things that have been suffered after the man-eating monsters have come out of the sea after they've done their worst here comes the one who's right it is here comes the one who is the word of God with a vesture dipped in blood here comes the one whose name is on his thigh and on his side that says king of kings and lord of lords here is the logos that we are following all the way to the ends of the earth following him here's the one it's him and the symbolism that we have this right here is an eternal story but the application is the chapter before with Daniel. As sometimes we find ourselves surrounded by man-eating monsters. Sometimes we find ourselves trying to give birth to the kingdom of God, to the son of God, trying to give birth to everything that God is within us, everything that we believe that he could be. Sometimes we find ourselves in front of the devil and Satan. Sometimes we find ourselves in front of evil and accusation. Sometimes we find ourselves surrounded by man-eating monsters. But we're following the word of God. We're following the eternal Logos. And out of his mouth comes a sword. Out of his mouth there's a sword that's sharper than anything and it divides asunder soul and spirit and can show me what's me and what's God. It can show me what's darkness and what's light. And if you compare this story to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, it says that he's led of God into the wilderness and there he's tempted similarly by this Satan-looking type creature as the symbolism goes, the devil, evil, and accusation. It was no different for Daniel. It's no different for Jesus. It's no different for the woman, the church, trying to give birth to the man-child. It's no different for any of us. Sometimes we're called out into the wilderness where there's dryness. And I believe it's Matthew chapter 12 that says that, that demons or evil spirits walk in dry places. 
It's a very strange part of that chapter. Not many people read it. Not many people preach about it. But it says there, and I believe it's chapter 12, where it says that demons or evil spirits walk in dry places. So Jesus is called out into the dryness. He's called out into the place where all of his evil lives. Think about that. Sometimes we're called out into the place of dryness. We're called out into the wilderness. We're called away from the water of the word to go out into the desert to face the demons and the monsters and the evil things that are within us. We're called out into the wilderness to be tempted. That's what happens with Jesus. He's tempted with being the elite, with having everyone bow down to him. He's tempted with his daily bread. He's tempted in every facet of his soul. And he always responded with what? The word of God. He responds with the Logos. Because the Logos was standing there in that moment. And he was able to recognize that I am the Logos. I am the word made flesh. I am the living word. And the word of God is living in me. The word was spoken. And that's what made me who I am. I am the Logos. So the Logos could speak the Logos. And if we realize today that there is something more powerful that is within us, if we can realize our full potential that we are the word of God, we are the word that God spoke, therefore I can speak that same word of God into my evil, into my desert places, into my dry places, and those dry places become living places again. Those dry places in my soul can be filled with the river that flows out of my belly like rivers of living water, the Bible said in John. That the Spirit of God will flow out of you, out of your belly, like rivers of living water, and it flows to all of those dry places. That's a life that's empowered by the pneumaticos. That's a life that's empowered by the Spirit, that we move through the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit, and that Spirit, like a living water, flows out of our belly to all of our dry places, to everywhere in our life where evil lives. Where darkness lives, where all of the desert places become an oasis. The Bible says that where he turns the world again back into an Eden-like paradise. And you take that all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. And it says in the midst of the city there's a river. And on the either side of that river is a tree. And this tree has leaves that are for the healing of the nation. If we can believe the fullness of who we are. If we can believe that we are the Logos. We can believe that we are the word of God. Then there are no man-eating monsters that can surround us. That we won't believe that God won't send his angel to shut their mouth. And that God will still find some way, somehow find innocence in me. Even though I may have sown a life in dishonor. That somehow, some way, God will cause me to be raised in glory. That if I've sown a life in a natural body. That still somehow, some way, God can find a way to raise me a spiritual body that if I've sown a life in corruption, that somehow God can still raise me in incorruption. Somehow, some way, through his eternal divine being and through his eternal logos that lives inside of me, that he can still see more in me than others can see in me. That he can still see more in me than sometimes I can even see in myself. 
That God who knows all and sees all can see my greatest potential and can see through the eyes of his mercy, not through the eyes of his condemnation. And that through this, eyes, through his eyes of mercy, he can make a righteous judgment and set things right. And it says they overcame him. They overcame evil and accusation by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony and love not their lives unto death. They overcame by the almighty sacrifice of Jesus Christ, by the one who gave his life a ransom, who gave his life as the propitiation for our faith, that they overcame by something that was done for them. Almost the exact same way that Abraham is put into a deep sleep and it is God himself that walks between those pieces of torn flesh and says, I vow to myself, I promise by myself, I make a covenant by the power in the integrity of my own heart not by the integrity of Abraham because Abraham has the propensity to break his word to break his promise to lie about his wife Abraham has the propensity for evil but God who has already dealt with his darkness doesn't have the propensity of evil he doesn't have the propensity of darkness anymore and therefore God could make the promise based on himself and not by the failures of a man or not by a man who had the potential to fail. He did it by a God that could not lie. That's what the Bible said. By a God who cannot lie. That's what the covenant is based on. It's not based on my failures. It's not based on, on him doing whatever it is he's doing this morning. I don't know what it is. It's not based on his failures. It's based on a covenant that God made with him before he was born. It's based on Ephesians 1. It said he was chosen before the foundations of the world. He was chosen before the foundation of the world. And God made a promise to him. God made a covenant with him. God made a covenant with your daughter and your granddaughter. God made a covenant with Taryn. God made a covenant with them. And he didn't base it on our ability to keep it. He didn't base that covenant and that promise on my ability to keep my word. He based it on his ability to keep his eternal word. He didn't make me have to be the one to keep my end of the bargain. That's what grace did for me. That's what mercy did for me. It brought me to a place to realize that it's based on his eternal word. It's based on his eternal covenant. Would you come up here and let's just pray. You, I just want to pray for them. Oh, God. Sorry. And I don't even really know what to say. Exactly. I don't have a prophecy for them. I don't have a word of knowledge. I don't have a word of wisdom. All I have is the faith to believe I have the faith to believe. I know sometimes you're over there. I don't know what you might get the chance to do. I don't know what you might get the chance to say. But if you continue to be the Logos and you continue to be that, and you maybe, maybe, just maybe you can remind him that God made a promise with him and God made a covenant with him before he was born, before he was created. Hallelujah. And God can keep that promise today. And it's not based on his failures. 
No, no difference is based on my failures. It's based on the integrity of God's heart. It's based on the integrity of God's heart. God, I send out an eternal word to him right now. And I can say, I believe in you. I believe that you have everything within you to make the right decision. I believe right now that you have everything within you. You have all the tools. You have all of the preparation to make the right decision for your family. For both of them and their daughter. You have everything within you. The eternal word of God and spirit lives inside of you. And I don't want... Lord, we send your word. We send your word today. Find some innocency therein and send angels to shut the lion's mouth so that he is not devoured by the thing that he's placed himself in. Send angels to shut lion's mouths so that he's not devoured by the man-eating monsters, but that he's pulled up, God, that he's pulled up out of the den. He's pulled up out of the lion's den and given the power to rule his life, rule his family, rule in this world well. Hallelujah. 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 Believe it for him, God. And God, give this daughter this daughter who has given her life. Oh, hallelujah. I almost want to... I don't know there's greater faith that I've seen in some people that would do what you've done, that would take the time that you've taken and live the life that you've lived and do the things that you did for your ex-husband, the life that you gave. The way that you did that, it, God, I pray that he blesses you exponentially for the rest of your life. If there's anybody that could be that person, as if I think it's in the book of Esther, where he says, what can be done for the one in whom my soul delighteth? What can be done for the one in whom God's soul delighteth? And I believe that just like Esther would do, the, the scepter was stretched out to her. She could have asked for anything. She could have asked for anything. But when the king stretched the scepter out to her, she asked for God to save her people. She asked for God. You could ask for anything, Crystal. You could ask God for anything. You could have asked God for anything. But when God stretched out his scepter to you, you asked God, save my family. God, give me the ability to show your grace. You did the right thing. You did the God thing. You did exactly what Esther did. When the scepter was stretched out, you said, God, save my people. And I believe he will. I believe he will. I believe he will. Hallelujah. Margie, it's the same thing for you. Come here. When God looked at you and God gave you the chance, God said, he stretched his scepter out and said, what can be done for the one in whom my soul delighted? He said, God, save my daughter. Save my granddaughter. Save my great-granddaughter. Save my family. And God made a covenant with him. And God made a promise. And that word will not return void. But it will do the thing wherein he has sent it. God, we believe that today. We believe that for her. We believe that for her family. That no darkness, no evil, and no lies can come between you and the love of God. Nothing can separate them from the love of God.
and that your word will return and it will not return void. It will accomplish it. And it's the same thing this morning for Alex. I don't know where he is and I don't know what he's doing. Come here and let's pray for him. He see and what can be done for the one in whom his soul delights when he stretches out his scepter. Lord, she asked for you to save her family. She asked for you to save her sons and her daughters and her grandchildren, God, and teach them to follow the Logos wherever he may go, to follow the Word wherever he may go. And Lord, we as a people of 1 John 1, that which we have seen and we've touched and we've handled of the Word of God, we go forth into the world to teach and to proclaim and their life is hid with Christ in God. Glory to 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 God. I'm telling you, if you want God to save your family, if you want God to be involved in your family, raise your hands and begin to proclaim. Raise your hands and begin to say it, that God, he's stretching his scepter out to us today. The king has stretched his scepter out to us and is asking what can be done? What can be done in the one in whom his soul delights? And we have the responsibility, the same as Esther, as she said, save my people, save my people, God. And this morning, God, we ask to save our people, save mankind, save the people of Ukraine, save them alive, Lord Jesus, save our families, save those, Lord, that are lost in destruction, save those, Lord, who are defeating themselves and who are a law against themselves, Lord, save our family today, God. We could ask for anything. You could ask God for a new car or a new house. You could ask God for whatever you want. But it takes somebody like Esther to say, God, save my people. Save my people. Glory to God. Jacob, your family is going to be saved because you're asking God to save my people. Your daughter, she's got a hope. Your children, they've got a hope because you're in here today and you're not just here physically. You're engaged. You're fully engaged in what God is doing. There's something that has locked itself in. When I look at you, I see something almost like a mechanism that I can't describe, but something that is twisted and locked into itself as something that's permanent. That's what I see in you. That's what I see coming out of you, that you're locked in and you're engaged and you're fully invested in what God is doing and God sees that God sees and he hears and he knows and that God is fully invested in you he's fully engaged in you he's fully locked into you I can hear the voice of Pastor Kevin saying that I've received God and he's received me the same way that I've received the Holy Ghost that the Holy Ghost is receiving me and he's receiving you receive ye the Holy Spirit let the breath of God blow on you today hallelujah hallelujah Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, glory to God. Josh, you're a wonderful man. I think the world of you. I don't even know you that great, but I, I really do think the world of you. I think there's so much potential in you. I think that even you sometimes even realize how much is really inside of you. Sometimes I think you do. I think you have these glimpses where you say, man, God is, God can be so good to me. I believe it. I, want, I would love 
for you to take all of those ideas, all those thoughts, all the positive thoughts, and multiply them by a million. As if God would do this for me, if God would bless you with Leah, if God would bless you with a good woman like that, and think of all the things that God would do for you. Think of all the doors that God will open in your business. Think of all the things that God can pour out, like the windows of heaven opening up and pouring out blessings on you that you don't even have room enough to receive. Pouring out life and pouring out happiness and pouring out joy, pouring out peace and prosperity with on, onto you. I really want you to believe it. I really want you to take that and have faith and believe and know that God has my best interest at heart, that God believes in me. God believes in me. I believe in you. I really do. I really do. Hallelujah. 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 Jesus' own life wasn't already and not yet. Before he's tempted, or it's not until he's tempted, not until he goes into the wilderness, it's not until he explores the darkness, it's not until then, after chapter 4, where it says he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted, in that verse, it says, and Jesus began to preach at that point. That's when Jesus began to preach. And the word that it said is that Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Change the way we think. Change the way we think. For the kingdom of heaven is within our reach. The kingdom of heaven is right here. The kingdom of heaven is right there can hear Josh Kello saying that statement from Nietzsche you could be more you could have the kingdom of God if you just would you're more than what you believe if you would just do it if you just have the believe in the potential believe in what you have believe in who you are believe in, in everything that God has placed inside of you repent change your mind think differently think think differently about yourself because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. all of the possibilities and potential of God are right before us all of the potential and possibility of God is right before us all of the potential and possibility of God is right before us all of the potential and possibility of God is right in front of us just believe it think differently repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and after after we've gone through the wilderness after we've walked through our deserts and our dry places and after we face down the great red dragon after we face down evil and accusation we begin to preach to others we begin to preach to others for them to think differently, for them to repent and metanoia, for them to change their mind, for the kingdom of heaven and all of God's possibilities and potential are available to them as well. Once we've realized it, once we've come to a realization and can recognize that we are of the same substance of Jesus Christ, that we are the Logos, Jesus realized it in his temptation and the word spoke the word. The Word lived the Word because the Word was the Word. And that Word was with God. It was God. And the same is with us. Same with us in the beginning. We are 
the Word of God. And I believe that we're coming into a greater time of knowing that, of believing it within ourselves. And we're going to be able to take that to the world. We're going to be able to take that to this county, to this state, to wherever God gives us the opportunities to go. I believe that. I believe that. Something my dad used to always say, I almost feel like asking. I don't know if anybody has anything used to say, are all hearts and minds clear? And if that's the case, we can pray and we'll let you go eat. What are the odds of God placing somebody like that in her way?
pray and we'll believe. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that lives within us. And we're grateful that you were teaching us to make that word flesh the same way that you became the word made flesh. You are showing us the way, the truth, and the life continually so that we won't ask the same question that Thomas Didymus asked, well, where do you go and how do we know the way that you go? And you won't return to us and say, have you been with me so long that you haven't seen the Father yet or you don't realize that I and the Father are one? Lord, we have searched the scriptures and we come here in prayer and togetherness and in love so that we might know the way, the truth, and the life so that where you are, we may be also. And we believe, God, for all of these families that are represented here today. And we pray for our body that's experiencing sickness. We're better off when Pastor Kevin, Scott, and Benita, and Josh, and Caitlin, and Wyatt are here. We're better off when Kyle and Shay and their children are here. We're better off when all of these folks in our family here today are here with us. We're better off as a family together. God, bring healing. Send your word and heal their disease. And heal us as a kingdom people. And we ask God, we can change the words to how great thou art to say, when Christ shall come, with shouts of acclamation and heal this world and heal this world not take us to some ethereal esoteric home beyond the clouds but heal this world wherein you called it very good heal this world Lord in Jesus name Amen